Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board. <laughs> and I'm reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Duh. Duh. <laughs> On today's show, Elite Athletes with Hemophilia is back with a segment today featuring none other than uh, BU Alma Mater is alumnus. What do we call them? We both went to BU. Alumni? He played hockey mm. there. He's also the NHL head coach, David Quinn. Yes! Fellow living with hemophilia, making strides in hockey, and he's our latest guest on the Elite Athlete segment. Cool, cool, cool. We also have another awesome dude by the name of Dr. Akshat Jain, who is the director of the Inherited Bleeding Disorders, and here we go. Oh, God. Hemoglob- hemoglobinopathies. <laughs> there we go. Hemoglobinopathies. I said that like 12 times earlier, too. <laughs> director of Inherited Bleeding Disorders and Hemoglobinopathies program in Loma Linda at the University Children's Hospital. He joins me for a rangy conversation on equity and disparities and access and all the things. He's brilliant. My new best friend. I know. All I've heard is wonderful things about him. And lastly, the latest I'm Fine segment, exploring entrenched mindset with a spotlight on leadership. Yes. Be careful, leaders. You are in our focus today. That felt aggressive, but it's fine, though. It's a little bit much, but you know what? We're going to talk about leadership because it's important. We have got all of that and more on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, remember, if you like what you hear. If you like it. Only if you like it, and if you haven't already, just subscribe. Subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast, and also follow us on social media because we're on all the things and we're fun. Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. (laughs) Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy, amazing. I know. And they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey Wherever on that journey they may be, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. PJL, tell me about this webinar coming up because you're in it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I like the directness, Amy Borg. October 11th, uh, the Wednesday webinar series brought to you by the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation, formerly the National Hemophilia Foundation. October 11th, Great. 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Wednesday webinar is on the topic of... I'm fine. Entrenched mindset. And I will be hosting and moderating what I think is going to be like a six-person discussion with a Q&A. Dr. Mike Recht is going to be there. Recht. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So uh, October 11th, before the next episode comes out, this will have happened. October 11th, hemophilia.org to register and join the discussion. You'll also hear the I'm Fine segment at the end of uh, this episode. But pretty cool. We got an I'm Fine Wednesday webinar, a segment and now a Wednesday webinar. Not bad, eh? Not bad, A. And Amy Board, you just got back from a, another community trip. Where were you and what were you doing? We were in Oregon for the uh, Pacific Northwest Bleeding Disorder Conference at the zoo. They always have their conference at the zoo, which they is sure fantastic, do. with the Science Fair Roadshow. Nice. So we were able to set that up and uh, teach everybody there about, you know, the coagulation cascades and systems, hemostasis. And while everyone, of course, is there mostly for the hemostasis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We're all here for the hemostasis. (laughs) That's actually true. Uh, Was the selfie station yet again the most popular component or was there a new champion crowned? Actually, uh, we added voiceover to the gene therapy module and everyone now is like, oh, I get it. Wow. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Simple thing like voiceover, baby. Nice. No, it was great. Like, it it was really fun, actually. A lot of kids like... um, kept coming back and back and back and back and playing different things. The selfie station is always great, always but yeah, it was great. It's always, it's, it's one of the coolest things um, that we offer and that we do at Believe Limited. And it's very cool. We're going to New York City next. So if you are in the Manhattan area, um, we'll be there for your education day on uh, November 19th. November 19th. Okay. With NYCHC mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Very cool. All right. Let's now talk to another community member, though he may be better known for his accomplishments in the world of sports. David Quinn, former hockey player, current hockey coach in the National 
National Hockey League. He got to speak to none other than our hockey-obsessed silent producer in the I booth know. back there, Keith Corneluck. This is Keith's I, finest moment. I think, are, are we going to hear Keith talk to David Quinn right now? Oh my gosh. Is that what's about to happen? Are you guys going to get to hear Keith? I think it's pretty exciting. Oh no, you're not going to. No, no. No, well his voice is going to remain a mystery. <laughs> But not really. It's in the segment. Uh, David Quinn, here it is, the latest in the Elite Athlete segment, which is a segment brought to you through our partnership with Sanofi. Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community. Take a deeper look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities at levelsmatter.com. Hockey. It's more than a game. It's the breath of young dreamers forged in freezing mornings. The silent pact between a kid and the goalpost in a quiet backyard. It's the dreams spun in the restless nights of those who dare to chase the impossible. The Stanley Cup. The epitome of triumph. A beacon of glory for every kid with a stick in their hand and a dream in their heart. Welcome to Redefining Impossible, the podcast, where we venture into the lives of elite athletes who dared to cross the boundaries set by hemophilia and push past its limitations. Hemophilia severity is determined by factor activity levels, a measurement of how much factor you have in your blood at the time of diagnosis. The more factor you have in your body over time, the better your bleed protection is which is why many people with hemophilia choose to treat prophylactically. Your doctor can perform measurements to evaluate the factor activity levels in your blood. Learn more about the importance of factor activity levels by talking to your doctor and visiting levelsmatter.com. Today, we're joined by someone who has not just dared to dream, but has lived to tell a tale of triumph, overcoming adversities that came knocking hard and fast. My name's David Quinn. I'm the head hockey coach of the San Jose Sharks, and I'm a hemophilia B, Christmas disease. From his early days, David harbored dreams, giant dreams, that transcended the limitations hemophilia could potentially impose. But unbeknownst to him, the journey was going to be more turbulent than he could ever possibly imagine. Playing hockey for the first 20 years of my life, not knowing I was a hemophiliac, was very unique. And I certainly wouldn't recommend it back in the early 80s or 70s to be a hockey player with hemophilia. <laughs> but when I was diagnosed, it was pretty devastating under those circumstances. I had, was very fortunate in my career to, you know, I was a first round draft pick of the Minnesota North Stars. I went to Boston University and had aspirations of playing on the 1988 Olympic team and playing in the National Hockey League. And things were going along uh, as planned and then Obviously, having the shocking news after my sophomore year at BU that I was a hemophiliac was life-changing, to say the least. So, you know, I had to change plans after really two years of, I would say, probably throwing a pity party for myself and really kind of having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that something that I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life, or at least for 15 years of my life, was taken away from me. It was a pretty difficult time, but... You know, in a short period of time, probably two years after going through those tough times, I was certainly able to rely and lean on my family and my coaches and people that loved me and cared for me. And I kind of reset myself and got myself back on track and focused on other things that I was interested in, and that happened to be coaching. For David, coaching wasn't a plan B. It was a natural progression guided by strong bonds and a genuine passion for the game. Mentorship evolved into friendship, and a new dream took root, built on respect and lifelong learning. I thought it was pretty seamless. I was very fortunate to get my first coaching opportunity at Northeastern University with Ben Smith, who recruited me to go to BU, and he and I were close while I played for him, but really grew very close when I was diagnosed and you know, going through my tough times. and. Uh, became not only a mentor but a true friend and he gave me my first coaching job at Northeastern University and it was just something I was so passionate about love to do and there was a comfort level for my end of it and you know it was really easy would be the wrong word but 
Seamless would probably be the right word. In this seamless transition, David carried forward two fundamental principles, an undying dedication to doing his best and a belief in treating everyone with respect. This approach wasn't just about being a good human. It was the bedrock of his success, guiding him to one of the most prestigious positions in all of hockey. One, I never had an agenda no matter what job I had. Any job I took, all I cared about doing was doing the best job I could do. Uh, and whatever happened from that happened. And secondly, was just treat people the right way. I mean, just uh, be respectful to everybody that you come across, regardless of what their position is. And uh, those really were the two things that I thought kind of put me in the position that I was in. In a world that tells athletes no, David chose to find out what he could do, encouraging others to embark on their own journeys of self-discovery and to find their potential amidst the inherent challenges that come with having hemophilia. I think there are a lot of things we can all accomplish that we might not realize we can accomplish, even people with hemophilia. And, you know, the great news is I think we've got a, a plan in place medically for hemophiliacs that they can kind of try what they're what they want to do, find out what their limitations are. I think we all have our own limitations. Some people can do more than others. That's just the nature of the disease. And, you know, to me, you know, find out what you can do as opposed to assuming what you can't do. Amidst the roaring crowd and the icy arenas, David stands as a testimony to relentless pursuit, encouraging others to put their health first, to arm themselves with the right medical plan, to keep the fire of dreams burning bright, anchored in safety and self-care. Your first priority every morning that you wake up is to make sure you're putting yourself in the best position possible to be safe and to be healthy, regardless of what your aspirations are. And once you've uh, achieved that, now you want to go full bore at what your goals are and trying to achieve your ultimate dreams. So as the ice clears, the last of the beers are drunk, and the fans leave the arena, we are left with the portrait of a warrior, a mentor, and a dreamer, who through the hard knocks of life, crafted a saga not just of survival, but of monumental triumphs. A man who looks at the impossible and sees not a barrier, but a challenge to be met, a challenge to overcome. Coach David Quinn is but one of the relentless warriors who refuse to be redefined by their hemophilia diagnosis, and we'll continue to talk to some of them right here on Redefining Impossible, the podcast. Special thanks to Coach Quinn and the San Jose Sharks of the National Hockey League for participating in this segment. Don't forget to watch the film Redefining Impossible for free at EliteAthletesWithHemophilia.com. And thanks once again to Sanofi for sponsoring this segment. I'm Keith Corneluk, and I'll talk to you next month on Redefining Impossible, the podcast, only on Bloodstream. Sanofi aims to raise the bar for patients living with hemophilia. Reimagine what's possible by visiting rareblooddisorders.com to hear more about Sanofi's dedication to the bleeding disorder community. Listeners, I'll remind you, too, that you can watch the Elite Athletes with Hemophilia documentary Redefining Impossible by visiting EliteAthletesWithHemophilia.com. And we'll be back next month with another Elite Athletes segment. Now, Amy Board, on to the discussion with Dr. Akshat Jain. Can't wait. So you've heard about him. Yeah, you've talked about him a lot. I really, I have? Wow. Yeah. I don't realize how much. When you came much... out of the interview, you, both you and Keith were like, that was great. Oh, that's true. That did happen. <laughs> well, that's how I felt about it. And you can understand why, I hope, as you now get to hear from Dr. Jane yourself. So here we go. Okay, joining me now is Dr. Akshat Jain, the director of the Pediatric Sickle Cell Center and Bleeding Disorders Center at Loma Linda Children's Hospital. Dr. Jane, thanks for joining me here today on Bloodstream. My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So there's a lot we want to cover in what is ultimately a short amount of time. So I want to dive in first, giving you a chance to give the audience a little bit of your history. How did it come to be that you dedicated your professional career to sickle cell, hemophilia, rare blood disorders? And how did that lead you to the roles that you are in today? Yeah, I mean, my journey started long ago and is growing up um, in India um, and, and surrounded by people who were suffering from um thalassemia and sickle cell disease, which is a, a, a condition uh, which is very prevalent, uh, believe it or not, in, in, in Southeast Asia. 
Uh, India actually has the second largest number of people with sickle cell disease in the world. Mm. Uh, one of my closest friends uh, growing up who had severe hemophilia A. And um, at that point, uh, growing up in the, the uh, late 80s, early 90s in Asia, um, the therapies that were available were, were so expensive. They still are um, that for a median household in a resource-limited setting to afford a prophylaxis therapy was uh, did cost my friend and his family their their home and uh, 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 their land. So they have they had to move away from the city where we were in the same neighborhood to to their ancestral village um, and uprooted their lives because they had to find a way to pay for the therapy with hemophilia. So that stayed with me um, mm. and allowed me to then um, venture out and and. Um, did my med school in Africa uh, uh, and then and have been in the United States uh, for the past uh, 17 years. Uh, first on the East Coast, uh, learning and training to be a pediatrician and a pediatric hematologist, oncologist. I appreciate that background very much. There's obviously a lot that distinguishes, say, hemophilia from sickle cell disease or thalassemia or other bleeding and blood disorders. However, I do want to make a comparison here. You know, for a long time, in sickle cell, and, and please correct me if any of this is not quite accurate, but for a long time in sickle cells, I understand it anyway, the available treatments were for symptom management to try to reduce the frequency or intensity of pain crises, but they were not necessarily addressing the disease at the root level. And that has begun to change. Now, hemophilia has had treatments that have uh aimed at the root level for quite some time, but hemophilia has too seen some novel therapies, new mechanisms seeming to or, or, or aimed at addressing bleeding and clotting without maybe directly replacing, say, clotting factor. So what I'm trying to get to is what is this moment for our audience that is probably much more versed on hemophilia than sickle cell, though we do talk about it a bit. Where are we now with treatments in sickle cell disease? What is available at the moment and what is at the forefront of phase three clinical trials being anticipated in the not too distant future? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very interesting uh, uh, evolution and uh, one that has mirrored the drug development uh, in the space for hemophilia, quite frankly. Um, mm. For the longest time, talking about specifically about sickle cell disease, for the longest time, uh, the only thing that we had available as a disease-modifying agent was this drug hydroxyurea, which was discovered serendipitously to treat hydroxyurea. And believe it or not, not, un not until very long ago, less than a decade ago, was that even FDA approved for an indication to be used in children, where it really impacts mm. people with sickle cell disease. If you treat children right from their early childhood, that really sets them up for a successful adulthood and a, a decent quality of life and a respectable life expectancy. Uh, but not, not until, uh, uh, I think, mid-20, uh, early 2010s, uh, uh, we only had that drug available to be used only for adults. So that's where we have come from. Um, very similar to the story, I don't know if you know, um, in the as early as the 1960s and 65s, uh, mid 60s, there were still publications out in the hemophilia world, out in prominent journals like uh, uh, British Medical Journal and Nature, that were still looking at clinical trials to treat severe hemophilia patients with with peanut extract or crushed peanuts. That's where we were. Wow. Not very long ago, if you think about it, 1960s and 70s and hemophilia treatment evolution. That's I, I whenever I give these international talks in hemophilia, I have that cartoon with 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 the Snoopy uh, uh, reminiscing <laughs> about the, the peanuts, and, and that's where we were uh, not very long ago. And that uh, from that with Dr. Judith Poole coming out with cryoprecipitate, and then the purified factor products, and a slew of evolution with second and third and now fourth generation extended half life factor products, and bypassing uh, 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 products. Um, um, that's kind of what is happening now in the world for sickle cell disease. Um, over the last four years, there has been an explosion, if you may, in new therapeutics that have actually looked at science in various targets uh, with a focused look at modifying disease, not just controlling symptoms with 
pain medicines and opioids and inflammatories etc mm-hmm. but actually hitting the disease where it really matters modifying hemoglobin increasing oxygen delivery increasing quality of life metrics and resiliency and all of those have led to these recent fda approval for medications that we have now as treaters have an option to choose from um we have anti inflammatory agents that are targeting selectin molecules we have oxygen modifiers or m- medications that can increase oxygen delivery and about 3 or 4 more in the pipeline right now that can be taken to modify the disease as an alternate mechanism whether it's pyruvate kinase or it's the uh, um targeting fetal hemoglobin all of these mechanisms were rooted deep in science had been around forever but its implication and application in sickle cell disease is really what is the remarkable growth uh, and an mm. opportunity for us to treat patients with a wide range of mix and match tools that we have mm. for the best outcome um and and i think the field is going to evolve uh, just how it did with hemophilia so i draw parallels from the development of therapies in these two disease groups So then continuing from that point what does that mean for specifically gene therapy because as we now know that the FDA has approved a gene therapy an AAV gene therapy for both hemophilia A and B sickle cell has not yet had a commercially approved therapy but there are clinical trials where are those trials and what are we learning from those trials into sickle cell and then anything that you would like to highlight as it relates to what we've learned in the work in gene therapy and hemophilia that would be interesting to have highlighted as well uh, you and your audience know uh, probably more than i do about about how the field of gene therapy has evolved in hemophilia we have a molecule to be used for hemophilia b gene therapy that has shown sustained expression of factor 9 many years down the line at the most recent presentation not very long ago in italy maybe as as early as last week we saw four year and five year data of expression with more than 30% of the patients after having the hemophilia b gene therapy administered to them have levels upwards of 30% now that is a big win for us mm. um uh, even with prophylaxis therapy with factors that we have to target that level of uh, a trough is 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 an uphill task um similar successes are expected from hemophilia a approved gene therapy and the two or three ones that are already in the pipeline very close to either approval or in the process of approval um when we look at the gene therapies for sickle cell disease and thalassemia two of the most common inherited blood disorders not just in the united states but globally mm. this is an opportunity a shot at a global impact a, a a technology that will be very different from the gene therapy uh, for hemophilia where we use the adeno associated viruses to package the missing uh, uh, gene construct but to actually edit a uh, uh, human genome in the case situation with sickle cell disease and thalassemia to be able to have a sustained permanent cure if you may quote unquote for sickle and thalassemia now that is something that would probably lead the way to a dis- to, cu- to curative therapies for many uh, monogenetic disorders we identify the gene thanks mm-hmm. to the human genome project that got completed in the early 2000s we know the genetic targets that can then be modified where we are currently is safety efficacy and uh, applicability of all these assets now available for us to review uh, and certainly by the regulatory authorities to be reviewed in order to have it available out in the field for us to then prescribe to patients um the caveat like anything new is always long term safety how is this going to pan out now that we are talking about gene editing whether we are using a lentiviral vector to package the gene construct into the human genome or utilizing met- met technologies like crispr cas or zinc finger nucleases or talon all of these different strategies to edit out the gene 
how is that technology going to pan out in 5 10 15 years in the life of that person with sickle cell disease would it have any off target effects would mm-hmm. the integration events which is how the genome that is packaged into the patient's stem cells how are they going to integrate into sites that we don't anticipate would help with sickle cell how is that going to pan out now mm-hmm. these are all things in the future and it's such a dynamic moving target that I think we'll learn as the field progresses along the way. But yet far, the results that we have seen with people who have received uh, gene therapy um, for sickle cell disease uh, are remarkable in a way where people have reported less pain crises, have reported higher hemoglobins, all the things that we expect a disease-modifying therapy to do. So while we are already embarking in a parallel lane, if you may, to Mm. modify the disease with other therapeutics. Growth and development in curative therapies like gene therapy and stem cell transplantation offers a shot at cure if it is found to be sustainable, both financially, because it has to be cost-effective. I'm sure you know uh, it's a big limitation uh, when it comes to hemophilia gene therapies and the price tag. The approved gene therapy for thalassemia by FDA, which is already on the market, um, is still very inaccessible, if you may, because of cost issues, whether it's the challenges with payers or the challenge with contracting. Um, If a developed country like the United States is having a difficult time in implementing such curative therapies, um, when I look about and I see my patients globally, um, it is going to be a long wait for them. So let's there's so much in what you just said, but let's let's highlight that last point. A few years ago, I directed a film about Chris Bombardier's climbing of Mount Everest. And what was compelling to me about that project was the ability to demonstrate that with proper care and management and access and all the rest, someone like Chris has the ability to climb the tallest mountain and put his feet on the top of the world. And the fact that that mountain straddles some of the most resource-limited countries in the world where to be born with hemophilia, to be able to walk down the street by a certain age is an unlikely expectation. The dichotomy, the contrast, the inherent drama in that, it was compelling to me that at this moment in history that we're putting somebody on the top of the mountain, we still can't provide sustainable, predictable, accessible care to the majority of patients around the world. So now as we talk about curative therapies, and as you cite data about people having 30% factor expression level after five years on the heme B gene therapy, for example, it is abundantly clear to me, I don't have to ask a question, it's abundantly clear to me that gene therapy would be the most valuable therapy in history to actually prioritize getting to as many patients around the world because there is not the need for recurring treatment. Yes, there's ongoing management and there's no unknowns. Nothing is so simple, but it is not the same as having to do 150 sticks a year to maintain primary prophylaxis, for example. So I guess this leads me to the question of, do we have to accept that it is simply going to be a long time before the patients in Southeast Asia and in parts of South America and in Sub-Saharan Africa are able to receive gene therapies? Or is this a moment in time because of the magnitude of these therapies for us to think about this differently globally, collaboratively? Is that too aspirational or is this the moment for that kind of behavior? I think we are laying the foundations for that uh, aspiration. You're absolutely right, Patrick. You know, I, I saw that movie and it was so inspiring and so moving to see that 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 is the the zenith. That is the uh, that that is the place we need to be as a global citizen, as global advocates, and as global treaters um, for every patient or every person who's who's been. A, uh, uh, dealt with a, 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 a deck of cards that they had no control over, that that mm-hmm. has tied their life to a lifelong suffering. Whether it's severe pain from sickle cell disease or dealing with bleeding and joint damage from hemophilia, it's an everyday affliction. Now, you have to remember, I, I, 
it's ironical but um, that analogy or uh, and the reality of shooting that movie the the peak of each mountain is is the bottom of another mm. climbing a mountain and getting to somewhere is just the beginning point of another we have to always look upwards um i recently returned and i to answer your question i think this anecdotal example of what i experienced in india in a very rural part of india um take talking to a family with a newly diagnosed male child with hemophilia a in a rural area in india this is the this is how the conversation went um family coming into the consultation room with the casualty they, they call it casualty because it's um like akin to an emergency room here in the united states with about mm-hmm. 150 50 people waiting to be seen and wow. two doctors um uh, in an infrastructure where there is no semblance of uh, uh something similar to a hemophilia treatment center so an extremely resource limited setting with a family coming in requesting the physician and i'm here i'm there i am an innocent bystander there just looking at that interaction in awe uh requesting and being able to procure uh emisusumab mm. for their newly diagnosed hemophilia a boy who got to that diagnostic stage in a rural part in northeast india um because they had heard about it on uh, on a facebook group um and social media wow. that's the power that that we have that we didn't have when i was growing up so while gene therapy may not be accessible for the next 20 decades the voice and advocacy is already reaching to these areas these far flung areas where you would never imagine or hope uh, 80% of the pa- patients in india still don't have prophylaxis as standard of care even with severe hemophilia a b with or without inhibitors that is not standard of, what you hear at conferences is, is may not be the ground reality mm. just that impactful conversation where the parents who very well knowing the pressure of hundreds of people waiting behind them and having a very limited exposure time to treating physician asking and requesting for a therapy that they had heard about um said everything to me mm. um we took that to the the local state minister and i am happy to announce we are actually very close in getting that contracted for that particular region in the free drug delivery program wow so if all goes through because of the advocacy which started with a very small a uh, request from a patient and there are about 700 patients in that region with severe hemophilia at last wow. count check if they are all sensitized and have access to a medication that we are now getting used to or have getting a good hang of and that's happening in parallel it may be a time lag of 5 years i think the time lag for other curative therapies would be shorter that's uh, helpful as a clinical scientist running these clinical trials i know the phase 1 first in human for other molecules are looking at cost are looking at children because as you know for almost all the gene therapy clinical trials whether it's hemophilia or sickle cell disease the young participants were left out because of the concern rightful concerns of how it would impact a growing uh, bone marrow or an evolving uh, human body mm-hmm. but refining those techniques and making them more sustainable and cost effective i think would allow us in the next decade to scale it up to a level that would meet the need of where really it's needed which is sub saharan africa south america for hemophilia um and clearly southeast asia india and china combined probably have the largest hemophilia and one willebrand well patients uh, uh put together uh, uh, so um I, it is impactful it is remarkable in the world we are and with new therapies that are already on the horizon I think we are only going up and up from here. For people listening who are wondering what can I do to help let's just say further the cause of access affordability sustainability around the world. You know, people ask me that sometimes Patrick what can I do and at times I feel very at a loss of what to tell them. You know, I can point them toward the WFH, I can encourage local involvement, I can encourage anytime you have a microphone or on a platform find the opportunity to just remind the audience of the macro picture but what recommendations do you have for people listening patients clinicians loved ones advocates of any kind what can individuals do to help support the cause of global access and affordability you know it's it's a very 
heavy question, Patrick. Yeah, no pressure on you there. (laughs) (laughs) I can share with you of what uh, my journey has been. So my roots were very far away from, uh, um, or or I had had, uh, my beginning from very far away where I am right now uh, and raising my children here in California. But, but not forgetting the roots was really what connected me back and drove me back to all these countries where I uh, spend substantial amount of my, uh, 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 my time doing volunteering work. Um, I'm not there as only Dr. Jain, uh, uh, the hematologist, but just there as somebody who's seen and, and, and experienced um, uh, closely uh, as a friend and an advocate uh, uh, um, for people who are going through suffering. Uh, uh, every day in and day out. Uh, a word for solidarity, whether it's through your podcast or from social media or from connecting with organizations um, such as a nonprofit that I run uh, that helps folks in Southeast Asia and Africa with sickle cell disease, there is, there is always an opportunity uh, to share experiences, to share strategies. Um, uh, a group of family, a, fa- a family of uh, uh, five or ten um, Nigerian American families uh, uh, are working with me to create strategies in the local language and helping mm. to come up with cartoon books uh, and, and uh, helping me to create those content to be able to be given out in that particular demographic in a program that I'm helping run. Just the idea that going to school in an extreme environment where dehydration is going to be uh, an imperative expectation will put somebody into a sickle cell crisis was very foreign to people uh, in the area, in the little small sickle cell program that I run. So having a school preparedness book, same thing with hemophilia, having a curriculum in the local language, uh, whether it was Gujarati or, or Hindi or Punjabi for the local high schools so that the school PE teacher or the school nurse is sensitized that, hey, if you have a bleeding disorder diagnosis, these are the strategies we used in the United States or the United Kingdom or in Australia. And maybe you might be a little mindful of having some accommodation. Just small little examples of advocacy because the disease doesn't change. We lived in a, we currently live uh, in a world which is a level global playing field. The pain mm. and suffering mm. that our people or listeners uh, go through day in and day out is the same thing that those patients are going through at a much a deep level at a more intense level because there is no structure and support net so just by having a utilization or sharing experiences putting hands together and just having a small intervention uh, like creating um, an international focus group or a discussion group uh, there is obviously a deep need for monetary support for organizations whether it's the WHO World Federation of Hemophilia um, ISTH, which does academic uh, uh, growth for um, uh, people that are fighting or researching scientific cures. All of those avenues are always open uh, for a financial donation. But there are people like me who who travel, who work uh, in these resource-limited settings. There are folk, friends and folks I know from the United States who are working today in different parts of Asia and Africa helping people with sickle cell disease. And, and, and hemophilia that would really feel uh, supported if there was a, a movement uh, uh, of moral support, uh, logistic support, whether it's creating uh, um, you know, a, a, a website or a magazine or a podcast or a support group, an online international support group where people could come and discuss strategies. Um, I know there is a cell phone in every house, even in the rural parts of Africa, with a connection with the internet. And so is true with India. So access is not a challenge. Access to the right people, access to the right knowledge, access and time that we can devote to connect with these folks who are struggling day in and day out is more valuable than anything that you and I or anybody else uh, 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 could, could do individually. Mm. 
I have some things that I want to follow up with you about, I think, offline, uh, or else this would become a two-hour episode quickly. So I'll just ask you one final question. It almost seems a bit small after where our conversation's gone, but I'll ask it anyway. So the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation, the National Hemophilia Foundation, recently rebranded the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation. Uh, I think the writing was on the wall for quite a while, starting with the tagline for all bleeding disorders a few years ago. So not a big surprise, not a huge shift. Um, but it's meaningful, I think, at least to some degree. And perhaps it also suggests a certain amount of watch out or or risk or or maybe not vulnerability or maybe not. At some point, we won't ask people what their thoughts are on this because it will be old news, but it's still relatively recent. So though it doesn't necessarily tie exactly to the rest of our conversation, I'm just curious in closing for your thoughts on it, what does it mean now that the USA has the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation leading the national charge? Um, it's powerful. It's powerful because the messaging, getting the right messaging would get the right people excited. And I think um, limiting something to just hemophilia or just a platelet function disorder, um, you know, and this is just a personal opinion, may alienate. Now, I am in a unique position where I run a clinic uh, uh, with a center of excellence for hemophilia and bleeding disorders, a center of excellence for sickle cell disease and hemoglobinopathies. And many are times the messaging has to be right so that one patient group doesn't get alienated versus others. Right. Public health messaging, public health programs, the support, um, uh, subspecialty care, uh, and the buy-in we have from legislators, uh, uh, lawmakers, and even um, uh, personnel that sit and make decisions about payers and, and, and coverage with respect to products and therapies need to certainly see solidarity when it comes to a disease group as a whole. The incidence of von Willebrand disease is probably uh, 100 times higher than hemophilia in certain parts of, uh, of the country. So having a more inclusive and an open-ended name would provide inclusion and bring in more advocacy. And I think we cannot go wrong with, with having an, I would say, go one step further and say what American Society of Hematology stands for and mm. has, has stood for, for decades, has had inclusion with not only liquid malignancies and cancer, but also with, with classic hematologic disorders such as hemophilia, von Willebrand, uh, sickle cell disease and thalassemia. I think that is that is a that is a yardstick which we should emulate because the wider our net, the farther we'll reach and the more stakeholders will will come under our fold. Now, I am I I don't represent uh, the newly branded organization or I'm not an officer for them. But any effort, whether it's national or international, um, seeks should seek to have um, an all inclusive effort because. We cannot live in a silo anymore. Uh, mm. We are all exposed positively and we are all living uh, on a world stage, which is a level playing field. And we cannot work uh, and just look at our neighborhood and uh, be happy about it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Dr. Akshak Jain, I am so thankful for your work, your time. Um, I'd like to do this again with you in the not too distant future. So let's stay in touch. Thank you for reaching out. I'm really glad we did this today. And thank you for all you do. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, you have a powerful source, a powerful channel uh, of, dis of d dissemination of information. I'll happy to come along anytime you wish. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jane. Thank you, Patrick. What a phenomenal interview. That was um, fun. As advertised. Um, so let's kick it over to I'm Fine, mm. our new I'm Fine segment. I'm Fine aims to challenge entrenched ideas around chronic resiliency and satisfaction with suboptimal outcomes by inspiring people with hemophilia to seek education and truly consider the possibilities. Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community, take a deeper look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities at levelsmatter.com. Now let's get on over to Patrick and the I'm Fine segment. This is all I've ever known. Is that even possible for me? I don't want to miss anything. I don't need that. I don't want to acknowledge my pain. Fine. I don't want to get poked with needles. I don't, I don't want that. that. There's nothing wrong. I'm fine. 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 
change isn't easy for anyone. On this segment so far, we've mostly focused on how we patients can be stuck in our ways of thinking, but the I'm fine mindset can be seen elsewhere in the bleeding disorders landscape. Patient advocacy organizations serving people with bleeding disorders have been around for many decades. In fact, the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation just celebrated its 75th anniversary as the community's preeminent foundation. So how do patient organizations and their leaders think about the I'm fine mindset? How are they themselves victim to entrenched and habituated ways of thinking over time? Today, I've invited my friend, patient advocate, and co-host of the Bloodstream podcast, Miss Amy Board, to explore how the I'm fine mindset might be seen in patient advocacy organizations and to offer an idea of what we as community members can do about that. Amy, thanks for joining me. From your experience and observations, how does the I'm fine mindset manifest itself amongst leaders at patient organizations and how does that impact patients and families? Patrick, I think this is a phenomenal topic because I think uh, the nonprofit sector in general is just entrenched in the I'm fine mindset because we are... Um, not resourced very much. We don't have a lot of staff. We don't have a lot of funding. We are constantly, constantly, I think, chasing after those things. And so it's so easy for us to sit back in our chairs and say, well, this is how we've always done it. This is how we've always done it, especially in the bleeding disorder community. From my personal um, experience and observation, um, we do this a lot in our patient organizations locally, and we also do it uh, nationally. Um, what is being funded? Not necessarily what would be best for our patient um, population, how innovative we can be in terms of what programming we offer, what education we offer, how we fundraise how we kind of think about things. This is just how it's always been. And so we're really led by our funders, rather being led by some of our leaders and also our community about what would be best. How could we learn best? And it's something that uh, was very troubling for me when I was uh, the executive director of the Colorado chapter. On that, do you have a personal example of how the I'm fine mindset impacted your work as an advocacy leader? What happened? The example that came to me first was um, working with our Hispanic and bilingual community in Colorado. We had um, a fairly large community and we had a really lovely, warm, kind community. They were um, they were just some of my favorite families. And um, I never um, went outside of my comfort zone box to try to make them feel like they had um, support and resources in the in their first language. Um, I depended on their children to kind of communicate with those parents. Um, they were they were very kind. They didn't push. That isn't in their cultural nature, I think, to push the boundaries and to ask for more. Um, but I thought about it sometimes and just never, never was able to get over the hump to like really prioritize that. And it's it's one of the things that really bums me out. I think the the programming that I did for that community and in, in particular, I think could have been much more robust had I um, really thought outside the box. So, Amy, what can members of the bleeding disorders community do to help our leaders fend off the I'm fine mindset and to help them embrace innovation and evolution? I love this question because you know what we all do? We all just voice our opinions. <laughs> we send emails. We call, we, you know, take some leader by the elbow in a meeting and, you know, push him into a corner and say, this is what I think you should do. And that's not helpful. Um, our leaders are overworked. They are not paid enough. They don't have enough staff. They just don't. They don't have enough staff. And so if you see something that you believe is a gap in, in how things are done, um, my best advice is to actually get out there, volunteer and do it. Don't just go on the board and say things. Actually get on a board of directors and actually say, I'm going to start a committee to do this. I am going to do this. I would like to start a support group. 
I would like to start a um, monthly donation, you know, program um, to build fundraising. I would like to do this. I'm going to build volunteers around me and I'm going to do this. Give, make sure that you're not being taken advantage of. Say, I'm going to do this for one year. I'm going to do this for two years. And then I'm going to find and identify another leader and we're going to keep this going. Actually go in and do it. These patient organizations, I've told my community this forever. There are organizations. They're not the executive directors. They're not the board. They're not the leader. They are ours. And it's going to ebb and flow of when you need that, when you have time in your life to give back to your organization. So just be mindful of that. But it is truly yours. Leaders are going to come and go. They're going to come and go. They're going to come and go. You will always be there. It will always be your community and your organization. So do not just go in there and be opinionated. Actually go in there and have a plan, have an idea and, you know, find other volunteers, find find something to do and to like really help your leaders out. Great comments. Amy, thank you for sharing your experiences and insights here for I'm Fine. Absolutely. Once again, change isn't easy for anyone. And that includes our advocacy leaders. Leaders are people too. In order for our community to continue taking steps forward, big steps forward, we collectively must push our leaders to audit their ways of thinking and behaving, to challenge practices and habits that have gone unexplored, and to Amy's advice, to enable and empower us to get involved and be the change that we wanna see. Thank you once again, Amy, for joining me. And thank you, Sanofi, for supporting this segment. Sanofi aims to raise the bar for patients living with hemophilia. Reimagine what's possible by visiting rarebloodddisorders.com to hear more about Sanofi's dedication to the bleeding disorders community. Reminder, October 11th, 2023, the NBDF Wednesday webinar on I'm Fine, 2 p.m. Eastern. Register now at hemophilia.org. And we'll see you again next month with another installment of I'm Fine. I'm fine. Thanks again, Dr. Jane, David, Quinn, Amy Board, yes! and all who made this episode <laughs> possible. This show would not be possible without our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda! Thanks, Takeda. Visit bleedingdisorders.com. I'd also like to thank Sanofi for supporting our elite athletes and I'm fine mental health segments on today's episode. Amy Board, October 13th is when we are back. What can listeners expect to hear? Well, Maya Bloomberg is going to be back, our Heme NP. I love when she's here. We're going to have another installment of I'm Fine, which I've really enjoyed. So I'm hoping listeners enjoy it as well because I've really enjoyed it. And we'll also have another Shemophilia segment. Yes. We'll hear from more community members. This is um, supported by Chess, so we're very excited to have that. And yeah, you're not going to want to miss it. Not going to want to miss it, so you know what to do. Subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast and tell someone about the show. Yes. Word of mouth continues to be our best friend. Well, it's my best friend. Anyway, I don't know about Amy's personal life. She doesn't really tell me about that. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. <laughs> and with that, that is all for this episode. Hey, loyal listeners, as always, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Just email us, like, whatever. Whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> Literally, just email. I didn't, I said, you know, don't tell us your opinions, but this time you can tell us your opinions. <laughs> yeah, we're not the board of your local patient organization. 100%. You can tell us your opinions. We, we like love opinions. It. We love opinions. Uh, you can inquire about casting opportunities, all the things on podcasts or even our films, which is terrific. And then find us on social media. Reach out follow all the things will be annoying on social media as well as this podcast <laughs> i'm your host patrick james Lynch. and i'm your other host amy board and until next time take self-care of yourself bye everybody bye-bye You know that I, I told that uh, I don't want to stay on parade, but I've bleeping want to stay on parade. This is the best. <laughs>